Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. We've got Game 5s all over the place in hockey and basketball's playoffs. BetOnline has you covered for all of the bets, props, in-game action, and more during this crazy week of playoff action. Use our promo code BLEAVE, B-L-E-A-V, to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of The Take It. Easy Podcast, live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is May 11th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening We have got a nice little show planned for you today. Coming up, we are going to talk about Tom Brady and the story about him becoming a broadcaster, which I'm skeptical about talking about because we did a bonus podcast three or so months ago about his retirement. Then we had to do another one about his unretirement. Then we had to do another podcast about Tom Brady's story with the Dolphins and the fact that Tom Brady was going to retire to become the president of the Miami Dolphins, and eventually the Dolphins would acquire his rights from Tampa, and then he would become quarterback of the Dolphins. And then the Brian Flores lawsuit happened, and Tom Brady didn't get to do all that. So I'm skeptical to talk about this again, because just because Tom Brady signed a 10-year, $375 million contract to be a broadcaster for Fox doesn't mean Tom Brady is necessarily going to honor that contract. He does not have to honor that contract because it's a contract for after his career is over and he can work his way. I assume there's opt-outs somewhere in there if a better offer presents itself because why would Tom Brady not keep all of his options open instead of tying himself down for 10 years of being a broadcaster with Fox? Perhaps he could get a, a general manager job with a team or an ownership stake or something like that. But anyways, we'll talk about it in a little bit. First thing I want to talk about here is some NBA playoffs, and unfortunately, there are two incredibly fun Game 5s going on as we're recording this. Unfortunately, I had to record before the end of the Game 5 between Philadelphia and Miami and the Game 5 between Dallas and Phoenix, so sometime in the next couple days, we'll talk about those series again. We'll probably talk about that along with Milwaukee and Boston. We'll just kick the can down the road a day. We don't necessarily need to be first to the news. And also, I don't like doing podcasts where it's like day-to-day reactions to games and events because that type of podcast doesn't really age well. And sometimes I like having evergreen podcasts that we can play weeks from now on the podcast. Sometimes I like to break mold there, like we did 25 minutes breaking down each of the series on Sunday that you can check out, or talking about all the Game 4s with Morgan from Australia on Tuesday. So we'll talk about all of the basketball games happening right in front of us in uh, a couple days, shall we say, depending on if our special guest comes through and joins us on the show later on this week. But we'll we'll kick those down the road for now. The place I want to start talking now is the one series that is over for all practical points and purposes, which is the Memphis Grizzlies Golden State Warriors series. The Warriors are going to win the series. John Morant's battling a knee injury that, you know, Jordan Poole may or may not have purposely pulled his knee out of his socket, which wasn't actually what happened. But, you know, NBA Twitter likes to talk about it that way. And that series already had a bunch of bad blood because Dylan Brooks took out Gary Payton and Draymond Green got a technical and all kinds of stuff went down in that series between Memphis and Golden State 
So everyone's tensions were high, and Memphis didn't really have a chance to really compete in the series, although we were joking yesterday with Morgan on the show, like the Warriors started the game 0 for 11, 1 for 18, 2 for 22 from the three-point line, like it was just an atrocious game for Golden State, and even still, while leading for 50 seconds in the entire game, it always felt like the Golden State Warriors were going to win the game. Why? Because the leading scorer for the Memphis Grizzlies was Tyus Jones. So there is something I want to touch on with the Warriors in a second, and we'll do that after. But the first thing I want to do here is uh, sort of eulogize the Memphis Grizzlies, because one of the ways that we do NBA basketball analysis is when teams get eliminated, and, and I say all the time that the regular season doesn't matter at all in the NBA, at least it, you know you can get by the regular season the same way. We were laughing yesterday with Morgan about how the Cubs and the Padres have basically are playing a series right now. The Padres have one of the best teams in baseball by record. By run differential, it's a different story. But by record, one of the best teams in baseball. And I'm just not following the Padres at the beginning of the year because I just don't have the time. There are also four game fives in the NHL on, I guess right now is the time I'm recording, but it's the next day by the time you're listening to this. And I just don't have time to watch those right now. And I didn't have time to watch the NHL last year, which made it easy that Tampa just ran through the entire playoffs. At the same time, like there's just not enough time for me to sit down and watch all the games. And so what I'm finding interesting about the NBA and the, and the postseason is that once teams start, when, once we know teams are kind of done, it's fun to eulogize the season, and especially this Memphis team, because this Memphis team, if you want to talk about the regular season having a practical impact, this is a, a, a massive season for the Memphis Grizzlies, because losing in the second round looks like a disappointment, only in the context of Memphis had the second best record in the Western Conference during the regular season this year. And it only looks like a disappointment because they were favored or had a better record than Golden State or whatever you want to call it, but we knew all the way through Golden State during the first half of the season was the best team in the Western Conference. It was them, and it was Phoenix, and they were both like 21-3 and and 18-4 and to start the season, and we felt like those teams are really, really good because we know they have bona fide stars. And then Memphis made this charge the same way Boston made a charge late in the season, and if you weren't paying close enough attention because it was right in the middle of the NFL playoffs, you might have missed Memphis going on this crazy run of success the same way Boston went on this crazy run of success and I get to be wrong about the Boston Celtics. I wasn't as vocally vocally wrong about the Memphis Grizzlies and I think the reason I wasn't is because I knew the Western Conference was incredibly weak. And it's weak only by the standards of the Western Conference used to have all of the stars. You know, for eight years, it was LeBron runs through the Eastern, or I guess six years, because there's the Derrick Rose and um, Boston teams in there who were also two of the best teams in the sport. But like from 2013 until 2018 in the Eastern Conference, it is LeBron James dominates and you have a rotating panel of people trying to knock him out, whether it's the Indiana Pacers in 2013 and 2014, the Atlanta Hawks in 2015, the Toronto Raptors in 2016, Boston in 2017, the Pacers in 2018, Boston in 2018. No one can can come close to LeBron, even Toronto in 2018. Toronto was the number one seed in 2018. They got swept out by the Cavs. So nobody stands a chance against LeBron James. There, there is no legitimate competition in terms of either a super team or a team with a superstar competing in the Eastern Conference. It is Kevin Durant's in the West, Steph Curry's in the West, then Kevin Durant and Steph Curry are on the same team. James Harden's in the Western Conference, Russell Westbrook's in the Western Conference, Kawhi Leonard's in the Western Conference. The best players of a generation, Damian Lillard also on that mix, the best, Clay Thompson too, all the best players in the Western Conference, one Eastern Conference guy, LeBron James. And it created this imbalance that people complained about a little bit, were also infatuated by once we got over the idea that we're supposed to care about parity in both conferences. So once we got over the fact that LeBron was going to win the East pretty much every year, 
once we got past that fact, it wasn't really a problem anymore. And we got the four years war, which is what it's going to be called years from now. The four years war of Golden State versus Cleveland every year in the finals for four consecutive years. And it was fun for everyone during that four-year stretch. It the, the way we got there was always a little bit predictable, which I never hated because as much as people say, oh, it was always the Cavs and the Warriors. The Rockets should have won in 2018. The Thunder should have won in 2016. LeBron went to a Game 7 against the Pacers in 2014 and 2018. Like, it wasn't always as guaranteed as we thought it was going to be. The way we got there was interesting, even if that was the result that showed up every time. And Kevin Durant switched teams in between. So, just because you got the same result, it's lazy to say it was predictable every single year. But that's neither here nor there. What's interesting is in the generational shift. So, in 2018, we now know in hindsight, 2018 is the end of the Kevin Durant, LeBron James era. LeBron James goes to the Los Angeles Lakers, which even though the Lakers win a championship in 2020, the line of demarcation of the end of LeBron and Kevin Durant being the best players in basketball, and Steph Curry, the the end of LeBron James, Steph Curry, and Kevin Durant being the best players in basketball is 2018. Okay, that's your line of demarcation. So after 2018, you take away... Kevin Durant, a year later, because Kevin Durant tears his Achilles during the 2019 playoff run. He didn't really play in the playoffs that year, except for the one game against Toronto in the championship where he tears his Achilles. So you take away Durant in 2019. LeBron missed the playoffs in 2019 with that first year with the baby Lakers. And Steph Curry and the Warriors that year lose the championship. Next year, miss the playoffs. 2021, miss the playoffs. So the Warriors go from champions five years in a row in the West, and they're about to miss the playoffs two years in a row. 2019 ends up becoming a weird transition year where because Kevin Durant gets hurt, Kawhi Leonard wins a championship. Like, if you take away LeBron James, you take away Kevin Durant, you take away Steph Curry. I mean, they technically didn't take away Steph Curry, but you take away Kevin Durant and Klay Thompson from Steph Curry, and Steph Curry's no longer on the best team in basketball because you've just lost two of your three best players. Then it's Kawhi Leonard. That's the next person in line. And by the way, this happens more often than people think. Is like players don't get better. The people who keep beating the other players end up falling, and then that player becomes the mountaintop. Kawhi Leonard didn't get better between 2016, 2017, and 2019. He just missed a season and switched teams, and we all forgot about Kawhi Leonard. And he had a team that was solid enough to beat Milwaukee, an up-and-coming team, by the way, with Giannis, who wins an MVP that first year and is establishing himself as the standard. And Kawhi beats Giannis, and the Bucks were two games away from the finals and two games away from establishing the next generation, and it didn't work out. And the Bucks came back and won 70 games, and the pandemic happened, and Giannis gets hurt in the bubble, and they lose, and there's a weird Heat team that makes a championship run. It's the same idea. So, You take away LeBron, you take away Kevin Durant, you take away Stephen Curry. And I guess uh, to a certain extent, you take away James Harden because that was was the year that they traded for... No, that was the year before they traded for Westbrook and Chris Paul and James Harden were beefing. So you take away the Rockets, you take away the Warriors, you take away the Cavs. Now you get to establish a new generation of stars. And Kawhi Leonard's this tweener period where Kawhi Leonard gets a championship, LeBron gets a championship. It's a weird in-between transition period where they aren't the best players in the world, and yet they've got teams that win a championship in the absence of real super teams. The the Clippers were the best team in the NBA in 2020, and they choked in the bubble against Denver. A Denver team that, by the way, was establishing themselves as the new standard. So who are the new stars? And and I know I do it stars, and that's kind of overly simplistic, and team ball changes some of the stuff. Let's just say the NBA is the sport most defined by stars. Okay, so who slides in now? So we slide in Giannis, we slide in Embiid, we slide in Jokic, we slide in Anthony Davis. And when you put LeBron James, no longer the best basketball player in the world, but still one of the best basketball players in the world, and Anthony Davis... 
you can win a championship. And they did win a championship. And then those two got hurt and they've fallen apart the last two years and traded for Westbrook and all the stuff that we talked about with the Lakers. So they sneak a championship in between. The Raptors sneak a championship in 2019 with Kawhi Leonard because you took away Durant, you took away um, LeBron James, and you took away Stephen Curry. Okay, so now you have the new generation. The standard becomes Giannis, Kawhi, Joel Embiid, Jokic, Anthony Davis. That's the generation of players entering their prime. By having those players on your team, you are good enough to win a championship. That's surprisingly four years ago. And Kevin Durant came back for a brief moment last year and, you know, coulda, shoulda, would've had a miraculous run that reminded, that would've gave him universal respect. If Kevin Durant is, has a foot slightly longer, makes a three-pointer against the Bucks, wins the championship last year, universal respect for Kevin Durant. And that generation in the transition period denies Giannis from winning a championship the same way LeBron was denied winning a championship from 2007 to 2010 when he was probably the best basketball player in the world. It took a little bit. Eventually, he got it. And so the the new generation led by Giannis, Giannis makes the finals. Chris Paul and Devin Booker make the finals. And Devin Booker, again, is a weird tweener. Devin Booker's a tweener at this point. But when I say the best players in the sport, we're talking about Giannis, Jokic, Embiid, Anthony Davis, and then you're left with Kevin Durant. Those best players are overwhelmingly in the Eastern Conference. Giannis is in the East, and we can keep going down the list to Jason Tatum and Jimmy Butler, who's another tweener. Jimmy Butler breaks the generations in half a little bit. You can keep going down the list. Most of the new generation is in the Eastern Conference. Jokic is there in the West, and Jokic made the conference finals in 2020 in the bubble, and 2019 was within one game of making the conference finals against the Blazers, and they lost. And then last year, you know, everyone gets hurt, and then this year, everyone gets hurt again. So, like, two years of just brutal injuries derail the chance for the Nuggets to make a championship run. And I still think if the Nuggets get everyone back healthy, they can win the West next year. But you're talking about Jokic is the standard bearer in the West and his team has failed him. Okay, so the one pallbearer of success, his team has failed him in Jokic, which is, you know, similar to how Derrick Rose was this exception that was going to take down LeBron and then he got hurt and it never happened. Okay, they haven't reached their fullest potential. So you're looking at a Western Conference that has not the best players in basketball other than Anthony Davis and LeBron James. And that whole thing fell apart because they've just been hurt the whole time. And Jokic, who everyone around him has been hurt. Okay, so you take away those two and you're left with the four best players in basketball all happen to be in the Eastern Conference. When we're talking about Kevin Durant, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Joel Embiid, and then Jokic in the in the West. So three of the four, if you want to keep going down the list, you can. Kawhi Leonard's out at this point because he's got the torn ACL. So you've taken away Kawhi Leonard, and this new generation is there, and the Western Conference just has like a void of, of power that's been filled by the, the, the Phoenix Suns because the Phoenix Suns have Chris Paul and Devin Booker, which neither of them are, are five best players in the sport. It's just solid enough because Devin Booker is entering his prime and is like the next guy on the list. After I mentioned the Giannis generation, so you have Giannis, Embiid, Jokic, Anthony Davis, um, Jason Tatum's a weird tweener, and then you get to Devin Booker. And Devin Booker's in his prime right now. And he has Chris Paul, who at 36 years old is still an incredibly viable player. He's not a st- he's not a superstar, he's an all-star. Chris Paul is good enough. You have two all-stars, and Devin Booker, who at least looks a little bit like a superstar. And DeAndre Ayton's a really good player, too. So Phoenix fills the void there, and Phoenix, you know, last year gets to benefit from everyone else getting hurt. Now we have the standard of Giannis and Embiid and Jokic and those guys. They've been there for four years now. And now there's a new generation of guys, which include, of course, John Morant. And this brings me to the point with the Grizzlies, which is, this generation lacked a Western Conference powerhouse. If we go back post-Warriors, so we're looking at Lakers, Suns, 
maybe the Suns again, but it's the Warriors with the same core as the team from 2015, like subbing Jordan Poole for Harrison Barnes. It's still the Warriors in the Western Conference, even though the Warriors are a shell of the team they used to be. The Warriors, we mentioned it last time when we were talking, the Warriors are 50, it was on Sunday. The Warriors are 15th in the league in points per game and second in the league in points allowed per game. That's basically the Boston Celtics. The, the, the Warriors are basically the Boston Celtics, and that's a second-round exit team. And it's a second-round exit team that might make it to the NBA Finals just because there's nothing stopping them in the Western Conference. There is no viable competition. The only viable competition of, like, this is a player who single-handedly can knock out this champion core is Jokic. And Jokic didn't have a team this year. So there literally is no precedent for what the Warriors are doing, and part of the reason is there isn't a Western Conference powerhouse. Give it three to four years, and that balance is going to shift back to the West. Because you have Devin Booker still in his prime as a as part of the Giannis generation. He's a little bit of a tweener, but still part of the Giannis generation. And you have John Morant, and you have Luka Doncic, and you have Zion Williamson for now. Like, that's where the balance of power is going to shift back over is the, the, the generation that is now children that, you know, will will one day dismantle Giannis and one day dismantle Joel Embiid and one day dismantle Nikola Jokic. One day Anthony Davis is already happening. We're already seeing it in front of our eyes as Anthony Davis's body breaks down. Those guys will want, will surpass the other guys whose bodies start to fall apart. And Memphis, this is a hugely successful season. The same way if Boston loses this series to Milwaukee, it's still a hugely successful season for the Boston Celtics. Maybe you believe the Boston Celtics will become a dynasty. I think the more likely scenario is they might be a one-off champion somewhere down the road here. And similarly, I think the Memphis Grizzlies have a chance to one day be a one-off champion or make a finals run or just have a team that's at least close. As much as Dylan Brooks and Jaron Jackson Jr. and Desmond Bain is an excellent core to build around Ja Morant, it lacks a true definitive all-star. And maybe you believe Jaron Jackson is going to develop into that type of player. And I understand the point there. I would argue that Jaron Jackson is the type of player that you trade to acquire a player better than Jaron Jackson. I'm not sure who that player is. It's just how you build a team that's good enough to win a, a championship. And it's entirely doable. Like Giannis has a similar type of core around him, just older and more expensive with Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, Brooke Lopez. Like if you're asking, if you're, if you're sizing up Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, and Brooke Lopez against Jaron Jackson Jr., Desmond Bain, and Dylan Brooks, you're probably taking the Bucks core and it might just be because of age. So maybe you think that they'll age into it. The more likely scenario is Memphis has reached a place where to maximize their window of opportunity, they trade for a player better than Jaron Jackson. Use Jaron Jackson to acquire a player better than Jaron Jackson. I'm not sure who that player is, because I'm not sure who's going to be available for Memphis this offseason. It's just the way that they take the next step forward, other than waiting for someone else to fall behind them. Because you could say Memphis is looking around like, just wait for Phoenix to begin the decline. And I think that's a reasonable request. Like, you know, Phoenix, as, as much as Dev, I, I think Devin Booker is the number one on the Phoenix Suns, as much as I believe it, there's definitely some question to that. And I think Devin Booker will not age out quickly. I think Devin Booker's got years left of his prime, even though he's currently in his prime right now. I think Devin Booker has years left of his physical prime. And Chris Paul... <laughs> I don't know what to do with Chris Paul and DeAndre Ayton's in a contract dispute, but they can't let him walk for nothing because otherwise, yeah, you got no chance if you let DeAndre Ayton walk for nothing. And the thing that's interesting when it comes to that is you can wait for them to decline. You can wait for Golden State to decline. But then there's Dallas. Then there's Jokic getting everyone healthy again. And as much as I love John Morant, Luka is a better player than John Morant. Jokic is a better player than John ja Morant, and John ja Morant, as great a player as he is, is never going to be a two-time MVP. It's never going to be that valuable of a player. John ja Morant is the best player non-Luka in his generation. 
And John ja Morant's not even in his physical prime yet. I know he won most improved player this year, which doesn't work with John ja Morant because you knew John ja Morant was going to make this leap at some point. It just took time in the NBA. John ja Morant is probably going to lose to Luka Doncic as long as they have similar types of cores built around each other. Where you can find an inefficiency is get a second star around John ja Morant. Because look what it did for Phoenix. John ja Morant and Devin Booker... In terms of value, they're about the same tier of player. They're not tier one, which I, you know, if we're doing tier one, he's not Giannis, he's not Jokic, he's not Embiid, he's not Kevin Durant, he's not Steph, well, Steph Curry's not the same player he once was. Maybe he is Steph Curry now, but he's not Jokic, Giannis, Embiid, or Kevin Durant. Tatum, Booker, John Morant, those guys are like the second tier of star people who we debate about whether they're top 10 players or not. And I said Jason Tatum was like a tier three player before this. So this is giving Jason Tatum the props of he has developed into a tier two player. And how do tier two players become tier one players? Their numbers stay consistent and everyone above them ages out. So I remember back in 2019 when the first Nuggets run was happening and they were the two seed in the West. They went to a seven game series against Portland Portland won the series because C.J. McCollum had 32 points in a Game 7. And the Nuggets, people were talking about, can Nikola Jokic be the best player on a championship team? And my answer was, not right now, except under the best of circumstances. And the way Nikola Jokic became one of the two best players in the NBA was, LeBron James declined in production, Kevin Durant declined in production. Steph Curry, well, Kevin Durant got hurt. Steph Curry declined in production in the Warriors. He missed a full season. Kevin Durant missed a full season with injury. LeBron James missed the playoffs in 2019. And then in 2021 got injured in the playoffs. And then this year missed the playoffs. Kawhi Leonard tore his ACL and missed an entire season. So everyone else disappeared. And Giannis and Jokic... And Embiid slid up to being the best players in the NBA without their numbers dramatically changing year over year. Jokic became slightly more valuable and his numbers slightly improved. It wasn't that much different than what he was doing in 2019. We just needed to see it over a larger sample size to be like, okay, this is the player he is and that player is most valuable in his physical prime. And the same thing is going to happen with Jason Tatum, and the same thing is going to happen with Luka and John Morant and Zion Williamson. All these guys are going to enter that elite tier once, years from now, Giannis loses a step or misses a season due to injury. Joel Embiid misses a season due to injury or just has a season where the Sixers go dud. (laughs) You know, they just have a really bad season and they blow the blueprint up. Or, I mean, we're seeing Anthony Davis lose a step right now. You've taken that away. Jokic loses a step or continues to play on the purgatory of the Denver Nuggets who fail him as an organization. That's how the next step is going to get taken, is just waiting for everyone else to fade. Yet when you play in the Western Conference, you have an opportunity to capitalize right now because all of those people that I mentioned, except for Jokic, all of them play in the Eastern Conference. So you can, quote-unquote, sneak your way to the NBA Finals. You just need to get a star player around Ja Morant. Maybe you jump the gun and trade for Rudy Gobert and say, we're just going to try and maximize the next two years because we don't know if Ja Morant's going to stay or if Ja Morant's going to leave in four years. We could wait three years for everyone else to age out, or we can actively improve the roster right now. Because last year, the Atlanta Hawks, who also have a generational star in Trey Young, who just happens to be in the Eastern Conference, last year they were the five seed. And the Philadelphia 76ers collapsed, and the Atlanta Hawks made a surprise run to the Eastern Conference Finals. They were the five seed last year. They changed nothing to their roster. It was the exact same core of players that made the Conference Finals last year. And the Heat improved their roster, and the Celtics improved their roster, and the Bulls improved their roster, and those three teams all passed Atlanta, and Atlanta was the eight seed. So if you're Memphis, the way you avoid Golden State passing you, the way you avoid 
Dallas passing you, the way you avoid Denver passing you, because Denver is going to get better next season, assuming Jokic stays, because Jokic has one year left on his contract. Denver is going to get back Michael Porter Jr. in whatever capacity Michael Porter Jr. is. He's still the third best player on that team. They're going to get Jamal Murray back. I think they're going to trade for like a Gallinari piece or a Duncan Robinson or something like that. They're going to get better no matter what. The Warriors were better than Memphis this year and they might they have the capacity to add a piece. They have young guys they can trade. They have cap flexibility. The Warriors have the power to get better this offseason. And Dallas is in the same camp of you just need a star, a second star who's not a volume scorer like Jalen Brunson or Tim Hardaway. Maybe they get it, maybe they don't. The advantage Dallas has over Memphis is Luka Doncic is a better player than Ja Morant. And so if you're Memphis, improving the roster and capitalizing on this opportunity is the best way to go. And maybe you wait for the best possible offer you can get. The timing is right, right now. And you take the risk, I would say, unless you believe John Morant realistically is, or I'm sorry, unless you believe realistically Jaron Jackson Jr. is going to become a top 15 player in the NBA. Because Jaron Jackson Jr. is one of the best defensive players in the NBA. And he scores enough points to get them by. If you realistically believe Jaron Jackson Jr. can become what Rudy Gobert is going to be, then you hold on to Jaron Jackson Jr. for dear life. If you don't, you flip him for Rudy Gobert. You flip him for DeAndre Ayton. You do something to upgrade from Jaron Jackson Jr. Because you can sneak by right now as John Morant develops into his physical prime. You make the aggressive move right now to improve the roster because everyone else is going to leapfrog you if you don't improve the roster. And this is the natural step of teams who have spent three to four years building a young core, developing them into a team that can make a sustainable playoff run. Which, by the way, Memphis did a really good job of that. Memphis got uh, John Morant with the second pick, and they got Jaron Jackson Jr. with the fourth pick. They took Desmond Bain with pick 30. Dylan Brooks was a second-round pick who's developed into a really valuable player. Brandon Clark was a mid-first-round pick. Zaire Williams was the 10th pick in last year's draft. They, they've done a really good job of building out that core. The next step is getting an all-star to pair with John Morant. Or you let the core keep developing together. And if Jaron Jackson Jr. becomes what Rudy Gobert is, which is an incredibly strong defensive... I mean, Rudy Gobert is an amazing defensive presence. But say, a really, really good defensive presence who also gets enough points by as a third scoring option. Then you hold on to Jaron Jackson Jr. If you have any opportunity to upgrade from Jaron Jackson Jr., you take the opportunity. If you have any opportunity to upgrade from Dylan Brooks, you take the opportunity. It's not going to have the same impact as getting a Rudy Gobert. It's still going to do awesome for your team. For example, Zach Levine is a free agent this offseason. If you sign and trade Dylan Brooks for Zach Levine, make the move 10 out of 10 times. It's not going to have the same impact. It's still going to do you some good to upgrade from the young core that you have. Because the young core might develop into what Zach Levine is. You can wait for it to happen, or you can capitalize on the opportunity you have now to stay ahead of the curve of the rest of the Western Conference. Because the other teams have players in their physical primes. Jokic, Steph Curry to the back end of his physical prime, but you still have a Warriors championship core that's replenished their team with young players over the last three years. And the Warriors... Same camp as as them, except the Warriors might be able to sneak a championship run this year. Find a player. I mean, the Warriors are connected to Levine and, and Bradley Beal and all that stuff. Like, they're doing the upgrade from Wiggins to insert X player here. How do we get a player better than Wiggins? Memphis should be asking themselves that same question. is How do we get a player better than Jaron Jackson Jr. using Jaron Jackson as a trade chip? How do we get a player better than Dylan Brooks using Dylan Brooks as a trade chip? Someone's going to be left out in the musical chairs at the end, the same way that the Hawks were left out of the musical chairs at the end last year. 
Memphis should just do their best to make sure they're not the team that's left out at the end. Because the other perk of that is acquiring Zach Levine means that Golden State can't get Zach Levine or Portland can't get Zach Levine. Like that's how you do the upgrade here and there and stay ahead of the curve is try not to be the person left out in the musical chairs of trying to get all-stars. It might work out. It might not. Find a team who's ready to tear it all down. See if they're willing to trade an all-star caliber player. Levine's the easiest one just because he's a free agent. Bradley Beal's easy because he's a free agent. And Rudy Gobert, it looks like, is going to get traded at some point here. So if you can get one of those guys, go and do it 100%. It's the best option you have. It'll help you stay ahead of the curve. And that's the best advice I can give Memphis. To, to hell with your cautions about what Jaron Jackson Jr. is going to be even if you think Jaron Jackson Jr. can be as good as Rudy Gobert one day. That, you can pause and think about that one. Dylan Brooks ain't going to be Zach Levine, so if you can get Zach Levine, go do it. If you can get Bradley Beal, go do it. If you can even get, like, Gallinari. I know I keep throwing Gallinari out as a trade chip. Go do that. If you can get Terry Rozier, go do that. Like, just just get somebody. Just get somebody to upgrade the team somewhere. Helped the Bucks stay ahead of the curve and win a championship. You might even have to overpay for whoever it's going to be. Just do your best to stay ahead of the curve. Keep upgrading, keep upgrading, keep upgrading, because otherwise the teams around you will, and they have stars in their physical prime. And as great as John Morant is, John Morant's still like the fourth best player in the Western Conference. Give it three years, he'll be the second best player in the Western Conference, but right now he's the fourth best player in the Western Conference. Fifth if you count LeBron. LeBron's still in that weird purgatory, but you know, Fifth, fourth, fifth best player in the Western Conference, which means his team is probably going to finish fourth or fifth in the West, which what does fourth or fifth in the Western Conference mean in the tiers list I like to create? That you're a second round exit. And guess what? Memphis Grizzlies, second round exit, which is not to slander the Memphis Grizzlies. That's a huge boost. Making the second round this year is a hugely successful season. Build off that hugely successful season by making a roster upgrade. I don't really have much to add on the Warriors coming out of this series, and we'll talk more about the Warriors, obviously, over the next few games, because like I said, there's no precedent for a team with the same core of players making this type of run seven years after the first title run. Like, it's peripheral, peripheral players have changed. It's still the big three that was drafted by Golden State of Steph Curry Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, Jordan Poole, kind of interchangeable with Harrison Barnes, whatever you think of Andrew Wiggins at this point, leading rebounder, small ball team. It's really interesting that the core of the team hasn't changed, and yet they're able to go back seven years after the first run. So, like in the modern NBA history, you could point to the Lakers in the 80s. And that was Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar transition of power to where like in 19, was it 1987, I think was the last Kareem year. Like Kareem was a shell of his former self. So I've heard statistically, like, again, this is coming from documentaries and secondhand accounts. I haven't watched the winning time documentary either, but you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar by the end, best player on all those champion Laker teams. And then Um, Here's the statistics for you. By 1987, averages 14 points a game and six rebounds. And during the first championship run with Magic Johnson, it's 26 points per game, 10 rebounds, and three assists. So, like, seven-year difference between 1980-1987. Like, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was the best player on those teams, and then he's a periphery player on the 1987 champion Lakers team. And then you have the Bulls in the 1990s, 1991 to 1998 is still Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. So I guess that's the closest comp you can find, right? Is the first Bulls championship in 1991 to the last year of the Bulls in 1998. And then by 1999, the entire team is gone. Scottie Pippen is gone. Michael Jordan is gone. So if you make it eight years, literally there is no comp for that t- 
type of sustained run. If the Warriors make this type of run next year, there's no comp for it. But like anything in the context of the 1990s Chicago Bulls is already crazy in and of itself. So you could point to like the Spurs in 2003 and the Spurs in 2014 winning a championship. The Spurs win a championship 10 years apart, still with Manu Ginobili, still with Tony Parker, still with Tony Duncan, or Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili all still together. Manu Ginobili is a Manu Ginobili's a a sixth man at this point, and maybe you could argue Clay Thompson is is a virtuoso sixth man at this point, but still, like Kawhi Leonard wins Finals MVP on that 2014 team. So maybe you could argue 1999 to 2007 in terms of the lifespan blood of the the San Antonio Spurs. That's an eight year gap in championships, and. David Robinson was the second best player on the 99 team and not the best player or, you know, not on the 2007 team. So like 99 didn't have Tony Parker or Manu Ginobili. So you could find either of those Spurs ones and it's not quite the same thing as the Warriors. Even in the same context, like we're talking about Bulls in the 90s as the only comp to what the Warriors are doing, which is basically you know, on path to possibly make the championship seven years after the first run with the same core of people. And yeah, the core changed in the in-between. It's still Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, all of whom were drafted by the organization that is still going to the Western Conference Finals and possibly going to the NBA Finals. It's incredible. The other thing that I find interesting about the Warriors was they led for zero... Uh, They led for one minute of the entire game. They led for 50 seconds of the Memphis-Golden State game. Like, they closed really well, and part of that was Memphis just had nobody who could create their own shot in the fourth quarter. Just nobody was able to create their own shot for Memphis. And I, I don't remember exactly how much it was, but, like, Memphis only scored... Let's see. Memphis had 29 points, but in the last four minutes of the game, they had eight points. They had eight total points at the end of the game there. Golden State had 39 in the fourth quarter. How did Golden State get 39 in the fourth quarter? The last 10, I'm sorry, the last 11 points of the entire basketball game for Golden State. All free throws. All free throws. 11 for 11 at the free throw line to end the basketball game. And I didn't realize that Golden State like has this thing with free throw shooters where Clay Thompson missed two in game one. Yeah, 85% free throw shooter this year means the odds that Clay Thompson misses two free throws at the end of a basketball game are 3%. So 3% chance that Clay Thompson misses both those free throws. And that's rounding up, by the way. It's really like 2.6%. Is a 2.6% chance that Clay Thompson misses both of those free throws at the end if he's a, well actually i'll give you the exact number if it's if he's an eight if he's exactly 85 percent, 85 percent isn't rounding in either direction let's say he's exactly an 85 percent free throw shooter it means clay thompson is the odds that he misses two free throws back to back are one in 36 which is equal to a 2.25 percent chance there's a 2.25 percent chance clay thompson misses both of those free throws at the end of game one so you're talking about 85% for him, 93 for Jordan Poole, and 92.5 for Stephen Curry. I did not realize they were this amazing free throw shooting team, other than just knowing Steph Curry and Clay Thompson are great at free throws. You also have Jordan Poole. Like, you can't guard three people on the inbound. You can't guard Jordan Poole and Steph Curry and Clay Thompson all on the inbound. Now you pick your poison and take Clay Thompson, and maybe you get the 2.25% chance that Clay Thompson misses both free throws at the end of the game. But the Warriors go 11 for 11 to finish the basketball game at the free throw line. It's 8 for 8 for Steph Curry, and it's 2 for 2 for Jordan Poole, and I don't know who made the last one. Maybe it was Wiggins, because I see Wiggins had a missed free throw there. But 101 to 98, it was 90 to 92, and they hit 11 straight free throws to end the game. I thought that was really interesting, because... There's a misconception about free throws as like a value shot in the NBA because some people argue that they are 
the most valuable shot, and others argue that free throws aren't valuable and they slow the game down and James Harden takes too many free throws. Free throws are the, the third best shot in the game, and depending on who you are, they, they can be the best shot in the game. So if you can shoot three-pointers, the corner three is the most valuable shot in the game. Three-pointers, most valuable shot you can take behind layups and dunks. If you can hit layups and dunks at the equivalent of 90%, it is the most valuable shot in the league. The average, I wonder what the average free throw shooter in the NBA is. Like if you totallyed all of NBA players, average NBA free throw percentage. Um, well, let's calculate it as the middle of the league. So let's see who the middle team in terms of free throws is. So it's Dallas and Milwaukee at 77.3 and 77. So let's say 77% is the average NBA free throw shooting number. If you can hit 77% of your free throws, and let's say you get two free throw attempts per trip down the floor, 77 times two is about 1.54 points per time you go to the free throw line. Sometimes you get three, sometimes you get one. Let's just average it out and say two free throw attempts per time you go to the line, 1.54 points per trip. If you can make a three-pointer at a 40% clip, you get the equivalent of 1.2 points per trip down the floor. If you can hit a corner three at 50%, it's 1.5. And I don't know exactly what the numbers of the corner threes are, but if we're dumbing this down to math in your head, the layup is going to be the most valuable shot because if you can hit it 90% of the time, then, you know, 90% 90 is generous also on layups. Let's say 90% of the time it's the best shot in the game. Layups and dunks, 90% of the time you make it. Then it's a battle between the three-pointer and the free throw about which is the most valuable shot next. And the corner three being the easiest of the shots, I don't have the exact percentages in front of me, but I'm going to assume the free throw is probably right neck and neck with the corner three in terms of next most valuable shot. So the Warriors master that part of it of like, we have really good free throw shooters. So if Jordan Poole, Clay Thompson, and Steph Curry combined shoot 88% from the, the free throw line, and that's a rough average because we're talking about Clay at 85, Steph at 92.5, Jordan Poole at 93. I guess if we add all those up together, you're looking at really closer to 90%. Let's say they're 90% free throw shooters. It's 1.8 points per trip down the floor. That's as valuable as a layup and a dunk. If, you, if you're if you hitting 90% of your layups and dunks and 90% of your free throws, you're getting the same value every time down the floor. So the Warriors going to the free throw line is like getting a layup every single time down in transition. And that's how they go from being down the entire game against Memphis, shooting three for 30, to hitting 11 straight free throws and winning pretty handily against Memphis in the last minute and a half. It's kind of interesting how that math works out. I, th I was fascinated by that watching the end of the game yesterday, or two days ago, but yesterday at the time I'm recording this. All right, transition. Transition with our old radio show intro. Shout out to Martez. Hope Martez is doing awesome over there at Open Talk Radio 313, The Flash. Shout out to them. Missed the radio show. It was fun to do that during the, the pandemic year where we were throwing ourselves way too much into sports. Um, Tom Brady. Let's talk about Tom Brady now to cap off this lovely Wednesday here on the Take It Easy podcast because Tom Brady got a preemptive $375 million contract to be the lead voice and broadcaster over at Fox because the NFL is making their television partners spend big dollars for big-name voices to be in their broadcast booth if you want to continue being a partner because otherwise we will take our dollars over to Amazon and Apple TV Plus and Netflix and streaming services getting ready to compete for the NFL. Which, by the way, like... 
I mean, it's all a money fight there in the entertainment game, but the thing that I find really interesting is this is the type of move you make when you're, like, squeezing the last dollars out of your corporate television partners. Because you can see the direction that entertainment is moving as baseball now has deals with Peacock on Sunday mornings and Apple TV+, and they have deals with Amazon coming slowly but steadily and Amazon's also getting into the base or the NFL game with Thursday night football. So you're seeing streaming services get into the sports game cuz sports markets are untapped for streaming services or at least undertapped at this point in terms of content. And they're getting to this place where they're getting into the live sports game, but live sports are still single-handedly keeping the cable television industry alive, and sooner or later the cable television industry will transition into streaming services as well, whether it be Peacock or Parabout Plus for CBS, or Hulu for Fox, or Disney Plus for ABC, I guess, or ESPN Plus, I guess would be the, the equivalent of that, ESPN Plus, Paramount Plus, Disney Plus or ESPN Plus, Paramount Plus, Peacock and Hulu for these different um, streaming services that are associated with Fox, well, ESPN Plus, ABC, Paramount Plus, CBS, Peacock, NBC, Hulu, Fox, respectively. And so this is kind of like a last ditch effort. The NFL negotiated 10 year television contracts. They negotiated 10 years of labor peace. They negotiated 10 year deals with Tony Romo and Tom Brady and I I don't think Troy Aikman, I don't I maybe Joe Buck, I don't think so, but at least those guys all got 10-year contracts. So theoretically the NFL is locking in their next decade of football. They are locking in what the broadcast is going to look like. They know who the stars of the sport are going to be. They're locking that down in terms of television contracts. And I don't want to gloss over that like they're squeezing the last dollars out of their partners. And just when it looked like Fox wasn't going to be the person to pay big dollars, they paid the biggest of dollars, nearly twice as much as Tony Romo and Troy Aikman for Tom Brady's services. And I want to talk about this in the context of Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, and I want to do it without glossing over the insane dollar figure that was offered here. ESPN originally offered Peyton Manning $20 million to be the voice of Monday Night Football, And Peyton Manning turned that down. Peyton Manning turned down $20 million to be the voice of Monday Night Football. And Peyton Manning made the call of, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it with Omaha Productions, essentially buying television time on ESPN and creating a broadcast where me and my brother can sit at home and dick around and do little production value and talk to celebrities. And we're going to do that. Because I'm Peyton Manning and I have all the leverage in this situation. And Tom Brady had the same leverage to do what Tom Brady wanted in terms of the NFL broadcast. Because the NFL, back I mean, I've talked about this before. The NFL back in the 2000s, when it was going from surpassing baseball as America's most popular sport, which happened in the 1990s, to becoming corporate NFL kingpin of the sports industry like NFL does 40 million 40 million ratings for their playoff games and other sports leagues do barely 15 million for the best of the best college football games the best of the best MLB games the best of the best NBA games can't do like a third of the ratings of the NFL's playoff games and their Super Bowl does six to seven times the ratings of the other sports leagues And so the NFL becomes king sport, monopoly over the sports economy. I remember putting up a poll on the old comical sports page of do you, will you watch a regular season basketball game or the two win Raiders against Nick Mullins and the 49ers? And people chose Nick Mullins and the 49ers overwhelmingly. And it's, they made the NBA switch their prime uh, TNT coverage during football season to Tuesday. They did NBA on TNT Thursdays, switched it to Tuesdays during football season. Why can't compete with football? Not even when it's the shitty Panthers and the shitty Texans on Thursday night football. Still can't compete with football. And so what's interesting is the NFL built that atop of selling Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. And even though Patrick Mahomes is a star, and even though 
Uh, Dak Prescott with the Dallas Cowboys is a star. And even though Josh Allen is a star and Aaron Rodgers is a star, they don't have the same level of influence and power that Tom Brady and Peyton Manning have because for 15 years, the NFL was selling people with Tom Brady versus Peyton Manning. And by the way, this is how sports leagues, this is how whenever you hear of like obscure sports or like niche sports, as I like to call them, having a moment in time, it's always selling two people, David, Goliath, which seems to be the type of story that America likes, is one and two. If you give us that, give us a reason to watch that, those are the type of stories we like in sports. I'll give you examples. Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen. Venus, Serena Williams. Joey Chestnut, Kobayashi. I know it's Major League Eating. Major League Eating once upon a time had a $10 million television contract with ESPN. You can sell, uh, by the way, you can take it a step further of dominance. Conor McGregor, Ronda Rousey. Still the two most famous names in the UFC. Because for a period in time, they sold you on that. Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson. They sold you on that. They sold you on the one person to get you in the door, and then you had a second worthy adversary. They can sell you on one dominant face and a worthy adversary. And the NFL from 2000 to about 2015 sold you Brady, Manning. Brady, Manning. Every year, Brady, Manning. We talk about it on those broadcasts. It's Brady Manning 17 on Sunday Night Football. Every time they played, it was an event. Eli kind of got a gist of that because Eli Manning happened to have the same last name. Drew Brees was the third between those two. Drew Brees had to go the long route to get to what Tom Brady's talking about here. Drew Brees didn't get to... Drew Brees signed a preemptive deal with NBC. Drew Brees had to do studio show this year, go call Notre Dame Fighting Irish football games, and he's going to do studio again until Chris Collinsworth is ready to retire. When it came to Tony Romo, Phil Simms, you're out, slide Tony Romo in, Tony Romo becomes a star overnight, white Dallas Cowboy, boom, here's all your money, change the sports, um, sports broadcasting industry. If you're going to make the qualifications for color commentator be incredibly successful player who was incredibly successful at selling NFL propaganda, well, you can go Troy Aikman, white Dallas Cowboy quarterback. Tony Romo, white Dallas Cowboy quarterback. You can go down the, the line to what was Jason Witten, white Dallas Cowboy tight end just because they ran out of white Dallas Cowboy quarterbacks who at least had a, a, a pretty above-average NFL career. If you, if you were one of the 10 best quarterbacks in the NFL and a Dallas Cowboy, you can get that job. I'm anticipating like 30 years from now it being Patrick Mahomes and Dak Prescott on the broadcast if the NFL wants to just keep using the same formula over and over. And maybe they've decided this is the most successful formula, is sell those people and then put them on the broadcast once they retire. Because it, it, like they've been doing it for 40 years. They did it with Terry Bradshaw, did it with Boomer Esiason, did it with Lynn Swan, who, who wasn't a quarterback, but same idea. Lynn Swan, incredibly likable, conservative black guy, etc., etc. So you're looking at, they did it with Terry Bradshaw and Lynn Swan, and then they did it with Boomer Esiason, MVP quarterback. They did it with Dan Marino, Hall of Fame quarterback. And then you slid in Phil Simms, champion quarterback of the 1980s. This is the formula that they keep using, and they've decided that this formula is incredibly useful, especially with Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. And Drew Brees gets to cut the line too, and Tony Romo gets to cut the line too, it, and they, they get to make half of the money of Peyton of Tom Brady. And Peyton Manning gets to do a Manning cast from home and tell ESPN how he's going to do his broadcast with Omaha Productions essentially buying time on, or getting paid time on ESPN. ESPN is essentially giving Omaha Productions free airtime. They're paying them to do it. They're giving them free airtime to put on a shitty production 
that I didn't really watch, but I heard other people talk about poor audio quality and just celebrities that don't say anything interesting, et cetera, et cetera. I never watched the Manning cast. I didn't get interested in it. I, I like the idea of a talk show format, but not if it's going to be Peyton Manning just talking to his celebrity friends and never saying anything interesting except the one time Marshawn Lynch cursed on the air or Eli Manning giving the double middle finger. Like, it's just, it let's him and his brother get to sit in their house and they get to talk to people and it's going to be a really poor production, but people are going to like it because it's Peyton Manning and that's what the NFL has sold in their propaganda. And I don't like the fact that NFL propaganda is how a lot of casual fans get interested in the NFL. I complained about this when I talked about how ESPN and NFL Network pretty much dictated the coverage around Deshaun Watson. And we had Adam Schefter talking about exonerations of Deshaun Watson and NFL Network just breezing past all the accusations. And let's talk about his trade value and how he's going to negotiate that. I don't like that casual football fans, the first source they turn to is NFL propaganda. But the NFL set up a system in that way because it's beneficial to the NFL. And they're just going to pour more resources into their NFL coverage than anyone else. And therefore, it's going to have the biggest reach. It's the same idea with how the NFL advertised the sport from 2000 to 2015. It's Brady Manning, Patriots Colts, Patriots Colts. Oh, now it's Patriots Broncos, Patriots Broncos, Patriots Broncos. It's those two teams for 15 years playing in nearly every single Super Bowl. And well-deserved. Like, they were dominant players and dominant teams for a 15-year period of the NFL. The NFL just sold the holy hell out of it. And now Tom Brady and Peyton Manning have influence and power over the sport that did not exist for any other players prior to them. Not even Terry Bradshaw and not even Lynn Swan and not even Boomer Esiason having that level that Tom Brady and Peyton Manning have where Peyton Manning just gets to make up his own broadcast on the fly and turn down $20 million to be the voice of Monday Night Football. And because he just doesn't want to. And maybe $40 million a year will incentivize Peyton Manning to bail on Manning cast and go to Monday night or go to, I don't even know where he would go now because Joe Buck and Troy Aikman are doing Monday night football. Maybe go to Amazon. I don't know. Maybe Peyton Manning will take $40 million a year to go to Amazon instead of the 20 million that Kirk Herbstreit gets. Like maybe... Peyton Manning's cool, just maybe Tom Brady changes the game for him, but maybe Peyton Manning's cool just being like, I'll do the Manning cast and then I'll disappear because it's not really what I want to do with my time. And what's incredible is that these companies are like, we will pay you like here, like the, the Patrick Mahomes joke or the family guy joke of, sir, here is a blank check with my name on it, right? Any dollar value here and I will pay it. It's so interesting that Tom Brady and Peyton Manning got that. They got the, like Tony Romo went through a bitter contract negotiation with CVS and ended up walking out with 18 million a year. Troy Aikman had to leave Fox to get that kind of money at ESPN. And then Fox turned around and paid twice as much to Tom Brady. Like they, they wouldn't pay Troy Aikman 18 million. They'll pay Tom Brady 37 and a half a year just for the chance because again I assume Tom Brady has something built into that contract that says I can rip it up at any time it's so interesting that that's how the game is getting played between these two guys and Tom Brady and Peyton Manning have that level of influence for a decade of NFL propaganda they got it like again it's only those two not just because of the football excellence But Tom Brady's not the greatest quarterback to ever walk the face of the earth. He's the greatest winner to ever walk the face of the earth. Aaron Rodgers statistically is a better quarterback than Tom Brady in his physical prime. Patrick Mahomes is statistically a better quarterback than than Tom Brady in his prime. Peyton Manning is statistically a better quarterback than Tom Brady in his prime. Tom Brady's the greatest winner ever. Peyton Manning's the greatest statistical quarterback of his generation and was a perfect partner to Brady Manning. Again, it's Brady Manning. We don't say Manning-Brady, it's Brady-Manning. Manning was the perfect complementary piece to Tom Brady's reign or the Patriots' reign or whatever you want to call it in the NFL advertising the sport. And those two get the power. And Drew Brees has to wait in line for four years and do uh, broadcasting in the studio and Notre Dame football games. And yes, he got to sign a deal preemptively before he retired, He didn't get the same perks as Tom Brady, 
and Peyton Manning, where Peyton Manning gets a broadcast tailored to him with his own production company, putting it on with shitty, shitty audio quality and shitty guests. Sometimes Marshawn Lynch is going to curse on the air, but overall not a great quality production. And again, secondhand sourcing. I didn't watch the actual broadcast. And and Tony Romo has to fight for his contract and Troy Aikman has to leave to go get his contract. They don't stack up to Brady and Manning, which is really interesting because the NFL wants to keep them around even after they finish playing. And it's somewhat mutually beneficial, although Tom Brady and Peyton Manning can go do anything with their lives versus calling football games. And so you have to really bring out the red carpet of dollar values to to get them to be corporate shills for the NFL a little bit more. Give them equity. They're still employees, but give Tom Brady equity in a football team. Give Peyton Manning equity in a football team as the Broncos are about to be sold. And I assume Peyton Manning is going to be a minority owner somewhere there in the Denver Broncos organization. Like, I think he also part owns the Colorado Rockies too. Like, find ownership. It's a great means to to grow your wealth. It is giving them equity and power in this $75 billion corporation. Those are the only two that get that kind of power. Not even Drew Brees, Tony Romo, Troy Aikman, they can get close. They can't quite nip at what Tom Brady and Peyton Manning have for. Peyton Manning, $20 million, nah. I'll just do eight Manning casts with my production company, that doesn't really know what they're doing, but we're still going to put on a production that people care about because I'm Peyton Manning and the NFL can sell. So it's interesting how that worked out. I didn't think it was going to happen, but Tom Brady got $375 million and that, that was the dollar value. Apparently Peyton Manning can turn around and say $400 million. Maybe Peyton Manning really doesn't want to do it because he could have had 20 million in the past. But he can just go back and say $400 million, ESPN, Disney. I mean, they, they kind of already have Joe Buck and... They already got Joe Buck and Troy Aikman now, so I don't know where he goes. Maybe he tells uh, Drew Brees to go fuck himself, and he goes to NBC and just steals Drew Brees' shine. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing if Peyton Manning gets $40 million from NBC and, and Drew Brees has to go over to Amazon? Like, it's just who was the most successful quarterback, you get the best job. Wouldn't that be an ultimate FU? That would be crazy. Anyways, thanks for stopping in, everybody. Hope you have a fantastic, fantastic day. We will chat with you all again tomorrow. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.